Amen. In a palace in Rome is Rene's famous fresco, Aurora. And it was a work that was unequaled in its period for nobility of line and poetry and color. And it was painted on a lofty ceiling. But when you stood there on the pavement and looked up, your neck would stiffen, your head would grow dizzy, and the figures would become hazy and indistinct. So the owner of the palace had a broad mirror put in near the floor, and in it the picture was reflected, and you could sit down before it and study the wonderful work in comfort. (laughs) Well, we're going to be looking at more than a reflection of God. I hear oftentimes Christ is the reflection of God. My friends, Christ is God. So it's far more than a beautiful reflection. Plato, one of the famous Greek philosophers, uh, we are told, once turned to a little group of philosophers and students that had gathered around him during the Greek golden age there in Athens and said to to his followers, it may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, a logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. Well, in John chapter 1, that's exactly what John is saying. Yes, Plato, and the logos has come, and God hath revealed to us perfectly. Let's look at another one of the great names of God, specifically here, Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, if you would turn there with me. The very first chapter of the book of John is we're looking at the great attributes, names, the different facets of the beautiful uh, portrayal of God as given under inspiration in Scripture. And I love this passage because we see here Jesus Christ uh, in uh, a very important way as the Logos, as the Word. So if you look with me, John chapter 1, and we'll begin with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Verse 14, and the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we behold his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The human author of the Gospel of John is the Apostle John. Obviously, this is given by inspiration of God, but we do need to remember that John, the one that is referred to in this Gospel as the disciple that Jesus loved, this one who at the time of Christ's ministry was probably in his late teens, early 20s, this one that knew what it was like to be with Christ day in, day out here on this earth, is the one that God chose to give this exalted description of Jesus Christ 
as the Word, the Logos. And so, first of all, I want us to see displayed in this Word, this Word that speaks to the communication of God to us through Jesus Christ, we see, first of all, He speaks to us of eternity. He is the eternal God. In the beginning was the Word. Micah 5.2 is one of the Old Testament prophecies that we often uh, quote at this time of the year. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. We often think of Micah 5.2 from the wonderful prophecy that in that very insignificant little town of Bethlehem, the great Messiah would be born. And of course, if he was the son of David, that would be the place he would have to be born, but that had been lost in the minds of many of the Jewish people. But at the perfect time, Jesus Christ was born at Bethlehem. But in this verse, we see that he is from everlasting. It's the same kind of idea that you have in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, God was eternal. So as things begin from our temporal perspective here, as the earth and the heavens were created, uh, and then of course Jesus went through the incarnation to become God uh, in man, uh, the God-man, the Lord Jesus, there you have a point in time. But Jesus himself is the eternal God. And so we have in Christ, and this is really a thrilling thought, we have in Christ one who came, who we can relate to because he truly became a man so he could be our substitute on the cross, but he was from everlasting. So when he speaks, he speaks as the eternal God, and yet we hear him as he communicates through his manhood. He knew what was going on way before the universe was ever here. He is eternity himself. That's a mind, uh, just an overawing kind of thought. But that's a communication that we get. He said to uh, uh, the Jewish uh, leaders, before Abraham was, I am, using that term again. He was the great Jehovah God. He knows no time. So we are having there in the Logos, and that's the idea of communication. It's personality in communication. We have the fact that our God is eternal. We've already looked at that. And uh, in the beginning was the Word. And it's important for us to understand what is being stated here. He is eternal. This one that we worship today that came as a babe in the manger existed in all of eternity. And that changes the whole picture. When people get a hold of that, you have to then bow before who He is and why He came. And this Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, this 
uh, is just glorious truth. Jesus Christ was part of the Trinity all throughout eternity. Our minds, by the way, don't think too long and hard about eternity past. You will get a headache. I promise you that. Uh, I have tried to do that, and it's a lost cause. Uh, we do not know eternity from the past. It's just we know an origin of everything. But we have a little better idea of something just continuing on. So that one is a little easier to grasp a hold of. But he was with God, and here we have it, the Logos. Jesus Christ is God. My friends, he's as much God as God the Father, as much God as God the Holy Spirit. And so the reason the world still worldwide stops at Christmas time with awe, even if uh, they don't even begin to understand it, is because God came to this planet. The Creator God came. And He came, as was mentioned earlier, in a way of, of the greatest humility to come and identify with us. So he is deity. He has full equality, and yet I want you to notice with God, was God, you have the distinct uh, persons of the Trinity. And so you have a unity of nature, and yet even in this statement, you have that glorious mystery of the Trinity there. And so Jesus Christ was fully man. And fully God. And that's why he could be the Savior of the world. I want to remind you, and I say it often, but it's something that ought to stir every heart here, is that Jesus Christ became man not just for 33 years. When he ascended into heaven, he had the glorified human body. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father right now in a body. That means though he's God, he is omnipresent, uh, he's infinite, he still shows forth his person in a human body forever identified with us. And we have that wonderful, glorious opportunity to know him in that way. The famous story of Daniel Webster when he was uh, in the prime of his manhood, he was dining with a number of top literary men in, in Boston. And during the dinner, the conversation was all around Christianity. And Mr. Frankly, uh, Mr. Webster frankly stated his belief in the divinity of Christ and his dependence upon uh, him as his Savior. Well, one said to him, Mr. Webster, can you comprehend how Christ could be both God and man? Mr. Webster promptly replied, No, sir, I cannot comprehend it. If I could comprehend him, he would be no greater than myself. I have a superhuman Savior. <laughs> and how true that is. He is the God-man. So, in the beginning was the Word, all eternity, with God and was God. And Jesus is the Creator God. Uh, we see here as we think of him being the eternal God. Verse 3, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, the idea here made has the, uh, is, has the idea of 
became rather than constructed. All things were uh, came into being because of him. We know from he- Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 3, that he spoke everything into existence by his word, out of nothing, ex nihilo. My friends, our Savior is powerful. It is absolutely overwhelming if you take any time at all to study the universe, just to look at it in powerful telescopes, then to understand the atomic structure. Just to think of one of those major stars far bigger than our own sun and the enormous energy that is involved in that. To understand the, uh, the power and the enormous force of a black hole. These things are beyond our ability to even begin to comprehend. My Savior spoke those things into being. That is an amazing but glorious reality. And uh, just to make that very clear, to add here to John chapter 1, Colossians 1.16, for by Him, this is speaking directly of Jesus Christ, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 hath in these last days spoken unto us the word by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So Jesus Christ is the eternal creator. And I will take just a minute on this, folks, but the dividing line right now in the thinking process of not only America but around the world, is whether or not you believe God created or man is on his own. Oh, there are many philosophies and there are many religions, but it gets right down to, especially in our modern world, do you or do you not believe that God spake the worlds into being? When you believe that God did, then you realize that we are created in the image of God. We are all divine image bearers. That every spirit is eternal. And therefore, every person is an intricate and very special and very priceless creation of God. If you do not believe that, we are but evolved sets of cells coming out of some kind of blob somewhere and mysteriously somehow coming to the intricacy of humanity and our universe and life, what value does it have except to each other? And that's why you have some of the most horrendous things now being thought and done internationally. You look back at the philosophies that have created the greatest heartache and the greatest travesties um, against mankind, you will find it comes out of a non-creationist perspective. My friends, I believe that God created. I believe that every person here is loved by God. I believe that Jesus came 2,000 years ago because you are priceless to Him and He died, He came to die in your place. And that every life is important to God. Makes all the difference in the world. My friends, do not compromise on the matter of a literal creation. It is at the bedrock of 
Christianity is at the bedrock of the division right now in the thinking in our world. And we as believers must be willing to just be thrilled at the truth of the Word of God. Given the story before of the professor who constructed a planetarium, and uh, it was a precisely scaled model of the universe. And a student came into his office and asked him, who made it? And the professor said, no one. The student laughed and asked again, come on, who made this fantastic piece of uh, precise work? Professor, professor said with a serious face, no one, it just happened. The student became confused and even a little angry. And the professor said, well, if you can go out of this class and look at nature around you and believe it just happened, you can also believe this precise piece of work just happened without a creator. And that simple perspective is absolutely right. In 1823, Charles Darwin went to the South Sea Islands looking for the so-called missing link. As he studied the cannibals who lived there, he concluded that no creatures anywhere were more primitive, and he was convinced that nothing on earth could possibly lift them to a higher level. By the way, you know where eugenics came from? Look at the title of the original work of Charles Darwin. The inferior versus the superior races because of his perspective on evolution. Very, very interesting. I could go for hours right now. I will not, but uh, do keep that thought in mind. But listen to this illustration here. He thought that he had indeed found a lower stratum of humanity that would fit his theory of evolution. 34 years later, he returned to the same islands. To his amazement, he discovered churches, schools, and homes occupied by these former cannibals. In fact, many of them uh, wore nice clothes, gathered together to sing hymns, and he soon learned the reason why. Missionary John G. Patton had been there proclaiming the truths of salvation. Darwin was so moved by their transformation that he made a generous contribution to the London Missionary Society. Darwin's missing link, link thus continued to remain missing. <laughs> and by the way, he did come, I don't know if he was saved at the end of his life, but he did come to renounce a lot of what he believed. But the, fact, the sad fact is, that we as human beings want to be our own God. That's exactly how Satan tempted Eve. Ye shall be as God. And if you look with me there at verse 10, I read it earlier. He was in the world, speaking of Christ, the Logos, the Word, and the world was made by him. We just went over that. And the world knew him not. The world and his own people rejected him. And... Uh, what a tragic thing. They, the Jewish people, wanted a deliverer, not a savior. And here was the one that came exactly according to Daniel's perfect prophecy found in Daniel chapter 9, right to the day. The only one that could have ever been the Messiah, born the son of David, but not under the curse of Keniah, but having the right of the Solomonic line, being the adopted son of Joseph. An amazing reality. And, uh, and yet they rejected him because they wanted a human deliverer and m mankind doesn't want to admit they need a savior. Oh, that 
wonderful passage of Isaiah chapter 53 that speaks of Christ. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And folks, we're naturally rebels. And Jesus came to save this world. In the fall of 1775, this famous story, the manager of Baltimore's largest hotel refused lodging to a man dressed like a farmer because he thought this fellow's lowly appearance would discredit his inn. So the man left and took a room elsewhere. Later, the innkeeper discovered that he had turned away none other than the vice president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. Immediately, he sent a note to the famed patriot asking him to return and to be his guest. Tell him, I have already engaged a room, Jefferson said. I value his good intentions highly, but if he has no place for a dirty American farmer, he has none for the vice president of the United States. My friends, Jesus Christ came, the creator of the universe, the royal deity, came into a dirty cave stable and identified with all of us because he came to die for us. But proud, independent humanity does not want to bow before God. And Christians, let me just say, your heart resonates with me as I <clears throat> speak of the reality of the Word and who He is. But you know, it's really tragic. God's own people, His own children, reject His leadership. James chapter 4, written to those early believers, puts it in a very striking, in fact, uh, a shocking way. Chapter 4 of James, verse 4 Ye adulterers and adulteresses, speaking of spiritual adultery, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Oh, as you look at the story of Christ, from the rejection of Herod and trying to kill Christ and killing the babies of Bethlehem all the way to the rejection of the religious leaders and then the Roman government and then Christ cruelly put on the cross. You see this rebellion and, and worship of man all the way through that and you see it all the way to today. And we as believers who have been saved by this one who humbled himself and came and died for us and loved us, we as his own children if anyone should understand what he's done for us, it should be us. And yet we do what we want to do. I'm telling you folks, we will be in eternity a long time, which is glorious. We'll be there forever. But we'll be saying, seeing and adoring the very Savior that we haven't been willing to listen to. And uh, friends, it does grieve him, as I've often given that picture outside of many churches and hearts in Revelation 3, the Lord's knocking, wanting to come in and have fellowship with us. All right, secondly, we see here he is the incarnate Son of God. In other words, that means the incarnation, he became man. I've already been emphasizing this. C.H. Spurgeon says, sing, sing, O universe, till thou hast exhausted thyself. Thou canst not afford a song so sweet as the song of incarnation. 
Though creation may be a majestic organ of praise, it cannot reach the compass of the golden canical incarnation. There is nothing more than that than in creation. More melody uh, in Jesus in the manger than there is in worlds on worlds, rolling in grandeur round the throne of the Most High. God became flesh. That's what it's all about. And that's what we read down in verse 14. And the Word, Jesus, the Creator, Deity, Eternal, was made flesh and dwelt upon us. Jesus came at a point in time. Uh, he is the eternal God, but He was born at a very specific time. He came exactly when all the prophecies of the Old Testament said that He would. Dr. Charles Ryrie says, pointed out that by the law of chance it would require 200 billion earths populated with 4 billion people each to come up with one person who could achieve 100 accurate prophecies without any errors in sequence. But the Bible records not 100 but over 300 prophecies fulfilled in Christ's first coming. He came. He was made flesh. And the way this is stated, uh, it this was, it is a permanent condition or state. As I've mentioned, he is always identified with us. And uh, he came at one time and always will be the, uh, the Son of God in the flesh. He became flesh, Philippians 2.6 referred to earlier. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. And so this I, I often said I can't imagine what that must have been like to the angelic world. The glory of the Son left the throne and through the working of the Holy Spirit, Jesus became a baby in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the humble Mary of Nazareth. I, I got, I'm sure it was absolutely quiet in heaven. How could God do that? How could God do that? It's a love not, being able, not able to be comprehended by the angels and not to be fully comprehended by us, though the Spirit of God helps us. But He became flesh. And, uh, and so it's very important, too, the way the, the wording here is that He truly became humanity. And that gets, uh, takes all the different false teachings about the fact that He just had the appearance of a man or he sort of overcame a man. No, he actually became a genuine human being and is today yet God. His spirit is deity. And then uh, we see that he dwelt among us. He tabernacled with us. This afternoon at 1.15 I'm going to be looking at the tabernacle. 
God wanting to be with us. Exodus 40, 34, then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It is God's burden uh, to dwell among his people. Commentator Ramsey states, we are reminded both of the tabernacle in the wilderness and the prophetic imagery of Yahweh, Jehovah, tabernacling in the midst of his people and of the Shekinah which he causes to dwell among them. The place of his dwelling is the flesh of Jesus. It is fulfilled in Christ becoming man. As the disciples would sit around Christ, truly a man, his spirit was God. They were fellowshipping with the God of the ages. And my friends, because Jesus came, every believer in this room has God the Spirit indwelling your spirit. You can fellowship intimately with God. That's an amazing reality. Number three, we see the glory, the gloriousness of, our, of the Word. If you look back at verse 14 with me, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Jesus revealed the glory of the Father. Just like in the Old Testament, it was an amazing thing to see the pillar, the cloud of the glory of God and the fiery pillar at night representing that God was with his people. And then there was the glory that would be in the holy of holies. And at times there'd be little glimpses of God's glory and mankind uh, would fall as dead because it is so glorious. And Jesus revealed that. John 13, 31 Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Oh, as we think of Jesus, there's something to every believer. That name is like music to our ears. Jesus. If you're hurting, just to think of Jesus. But why is there such a warmth? Why is there such a, such a comfort? Why is that name? Well, it's salvation, Jehovah saves. But it's also because he revealed the glory of God. You're responding to God. You see, you were made by God for him. Your spirit is made in the image of God. And when you are uh, saved through the grace that comes because of the finished work of Christ, your heart then is united with God and the Spirit of God indwells you and everything about you comes alive. The very reason for which you were created now begins to occur and that, that comfort, that warmth, that strength, that sense of, uh, of purpose comes because now you're beginning to operate the way God wants you to function. And so, just like Jesus revealed the glory of the Father, we now are to show forth the same glory in our lives because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that's something that, that we need to understand as 2 Corinthians chapter 4 talks about. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Our very face should show forth the reality of the face of Jesus Christ. And we need to do the same. You know, in the days before electricity, you had oil lamps. And if you've ever been around those, they get 
blackened pretty quickly. And uh, they were the main thing used for lighting in cities and so forth and farmhouses. But if it was going to work the maximum, the wicks had to be carefully trimmed so the flame could be bright and even. And the globes had to be cleaned so the light could come out and it could be clear. And so we as believers, we have the glory, but we certainly have dirty globes a lot. Selfishness holds back. And the darkness of this world that we allow into us, that Satan is able to deceive us, keeps that light that is in us from shining forth. Aren't you glad Jesus came as the unobstructed light of the world? And all he could be seen. That's why he was even reacted to. But remember what he said to his disciples and to all of us, ye are the light of the world. Folks, we as believers should be so walking with God that the light is obvious. It should shine forth in a community. There ought to be no doubt whether people like it or not. There's something real about the church of the living God. And so we have the privilege of doing the same. Oh, the effect of the Christian life. I had the privilege for a number of years of being uh, on the board and the vice chairman of Russian Gospel Ministries. And George Evans was one of the top leaders of the Russian church. He had been put in prison for years and then uh, in a prisoner swap was able to come to the United States, got to know him well. And one of the many stories of the tremendous testimony of believers that I heard of was such as... uh, the story in 1974 of uh, a former uh, criminal, Krosloff, and uh, he later became a church leader. But he, he made this statement, among the general despair, while prisoners like myself were cursing ourselves, the camp, the authorities, while they were trying to commit suicide by hanging themselves or other ways, the Christians, often with greater sentences than the other people have, 20 to 25 years, did not despair. One could see Christ reflected in their faces. Their pure, upright life, deep faith and devotion to God, their gentleness and their wonderful manliness became a shining example of real life for thousands. And folks, as our culture is getting more and more in darkness and despair and people are really bearing the impact of an immoral revolution that is tearing lives apart and all of the hopelessness of a, a, a philosophy of life without God. Oh, if ever they need to see the light that is Jesus Christ, it should be through us. And Jesus, in this matter, he was unique in his person. It's very important as we think of the glory of God, he was unique. Colossians 1.15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. You have here in verse 14, and the only begotten. It's the one and only kind. doesn't mean that he was the first of many that were born. No, he is the one and only son is what that means in the Greek. Uh, it is a unique kind. It means literally one of a kind. Jesus Christ is the only son of God. And then finally here as we look at this passage about the Word, back in verse 14, look at the last phrase, full of grace and truth. This one who's God, 
the one who was with God, the one who was from all eternity, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who has been rejected by his very creation. He became flesh and he tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. And we beheld, they did back then, John the Apostle, and we now behold his glory as of the only unique, one and the only uh, begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And here's the good news. Jesus has all the grace we need to meet our needs. He's full of grace and truth. What's, what's grace? Grace is God's free gift of His divine empowerment and involvement in our life that we don't deserve. We can't do ourselves, but God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's grace. That's the gift of His love. Starts with salvation, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Starts with salvation, but it continues on uh, in the grace in which we that uh, in which we grow. Uh, Acts thirteen forty three. Now, when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. I've got. Good news for you, this one who came, who is the creator, God who became flesh, who was that babe in the manger, who is the word, who is communicating himself, who wants a relationship with you, can meet whatever need is represented in this room right now. You say, Pastor, i got real problems. Well, he specializes in that. <laughs> do you think God would come from glory and not do a full work in which he could solve every problem? Certainly not. He came to solve it all, to give you eternal life. But while we're here on this earth, because we are to be the light of the world, He will meet every need. He has the grace to do it. And uh, it's just such a, a glorious thing. You take a plane and it sits on a runway because the law of gravity holds it out down. But when the jet propulsion takes place and the right aerodynamics are involved, in its uh, runway takeoff, all of a sudden that massive, heavy piece of metal with a bunch of people on it defies the law of gravity. <laughs> Sometimes I think about it, I think, whoa, that is amazing. I hope it continues on as I'm going up. Uh, uh, the most dangerous couple of minutes in a flight are those first couple of minutes as there is that freedom from the gravitational uh, pulling down at that time. Think of Paul, a murderer, a, a man who was involved in persecuting Christians and denying Christ. And when he came to Christ, his life was transformed. And frankly, we're here today because of his testimony. That's what God specializes in doing. And so Jesus has all the grace that we need to save us, to meet our needs, if we will trust him. And the key for grace is truth. Uh, uh, Jesus has the truth. Romans 5.1 Therefore being justified by faith, that's faith in the Word of God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 
We have all that we need right here. If we'll believe this and depend upon it for salvation and depend upon it for each step in our life, this one who came, the Word, the one who's communicating himself to us, the one who wants to deliver us, if we will depend upon him and call upon him, he will give us eternal life, he will give us abundant life, he will meet any need, but we've got to come to him on his terms, by faith. Oh, my friends, the Word, what a glorious reality. The great I am, from the beginning of time, he had you on his mind and he had me on his mind. And all here this morning we need to realize the most important thing in life is for us to embrace the reality of the one who came for us. Let's bow for prayer. As we